You can turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 111. As I mentioned before, we've been studying what it means to worship the Lord with all of our being. And we've come to what does it mean to worship the Lord with all your mind. We have this psalm before us. So we're reading the entire psalm. This is God's word. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright and the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we believe in your Holy Spirit. We believe in your Holy Spirit, and we know without his intervention, we have no hope to understand the greatness of who you are. But send him amongst us this morning, Father. Help our minds to be open to what you would have us to learn. Help our hearts to be receptive to the affection that you give us. Help me to speak your words and not my own. We pray this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. So I learned recently about this phenomenon that uh, for most of human history, when people talked about their dreams, they would describe them as being real life, really in color, smells, tastes, and all that. But there was this period of about 30, 40 years in the 1900s where people started reporting dreaming in black and white. And then it sort of came back, and people would dream in color again. And what researchers have determined that, that there's exceptions, but most often, if you reported dreaming in black and white, you were a child when black and white television and black and white movies were what was around, when what, that was what in the culture was in the culture. And we can see that, that what you take in, what your mind is consumed with, can affect all kinds of things can affect your dreams, your unconscious. It can captivate you. Well, this psalm here is inviting us to be captivated. It is inviting us to, to look at God, to know about him, but to turn in praise as a result. You see, theology is good, but good theology leads to doxology. And by that, I mean knowing about God, having knowledge of who God is and what he's done should lead us to praise him. Good theology leads to doxology. The knowledge of God should lead to worship of him. 
And make no mistake, this psalm is a thinking psalm. Right? It's, a, it's an acrostic. Each verse basically starts with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's very regimented and systematic and intentional. But there's all these references to the mind, all these things that the psalmist wants us to consider. It says that God's works are studied, that they're to be remembered, that they're the beginning of wisdom, that all who practice them have a good understanding. We are called to think about God, but we can see here that it doesn't stop there. We're not just brains walking around on sticks. We are whole persons with thoughts, yes, but hearts and bodies. And all of these are to be connected to each other in practice and emotion and overflowing praise. So what do we need to know in order to praise? What theology needs to lead us to doxology? Well, we need to know God's character, who he is and what he's done. We need to know how to respond. And we need to know the Lord. That's what we're going to look at this morning, to know God's character, to know how to respond, and to know the Lord. And first, what does it mean to know God's character? This whole psalm seems to be taken up with the, the description of who God is, the, the explanation of what he has done. He's described as a, a powerful creator, as someone who is righteous, who is gracious and merciful, who's just and true, who's faithful, who is holy, and who is awesome. Indeed, in verse 4, when it says that the Lord is gracious and merciful, that's how God describes himself. When, when Moses asks to see his glory, when he comes and gives the law, he describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. But this is not just a uh, intellectual description. It's not just a, a, a fact about God. Oh yeah, God, he's gracious and merciful. This is an experiential thing. To say someone is gracious and merciful, you can't just know that fact. You have to experience it. It's like if I said, I'm an excellent pole vaulter. Well, maybe. <laughs> you don't necessarily know, but have you seen me pole vault? Have you seen me try to pole vault? You'd probably be disappointed if you would. You, you have to see and experience that in order to actually know it. And so the psalm goes on, and, and most of what it describes here is not God directly, but what God does, the actions that he carries out. It says that great are the works of the Lord. The things that God does are great, that they are studied by all who delight in him. They cry out to be studied. So great and glorious and magnificent are the things that God does that, that they are asking to be studied. And we can see this when we look out at the world, when we can see nature, when we, we see a new telescope pointed at the heavens, when we hear about a new scientific discovery, it can be mind-blowing. This is amazing. And there's so much more to understand and encounter. There's so much more than we could hope to understand in one hour a day on Sunday morning. We are to, to seek to understand. We're to encounter God's works, to admire and applaud them at all times. Have you ever wondered why we still write Christian books? I mean, the church has been around for 2,000 years. You think we've said it all, right? 
We have not because God is so infinite. God is so immense. His works are so magnificent that we could keep writing and keep writing and keep writing and keep writing and still not mind the depths of who he is and what he has done for us. Not only this, but we need more reminding because we often forget how great are the works of the Lord. And they are great. But they are not great because they're great. They are great because they're God's. God's works are great because God is great. They all point to him. And so we should delight in God. We should study his works. When we do so, we glorify God. But it doesn't stop in the study. It should carry through to worship. We can become somewhat consumed in the creation We can look at the world around us and say, that's amazing, and just stop right there. We can look at at what God has created in the people around us, like they are so cool, and just stop right there. We can look at, at justice. We can look at math. We can look at gardens and be like, that's so cool, period. Instead of carrying through and looking to the creator who brought them into being. We went on vacation last week. And on our way home, we stopped at the Natural Bridge. But when we were uh, in Roanoke, we went to this art museum, and they had this whole exhibit of art of the Natural Bridge. Elizabeth and I walked through it, and we're like, that's a nice painting, but, you know, it's just kind of this, it's just a rock that's a little curved, right? You, know, just, you don't really get a, a sense of it. And then we went to the actual Natural Bridge, and I'm standing over it, and it's hurting my head because the perspective is so immense. It's, I couldn't even really fully grasp it. Sometimes we stop and look at the, the sign of the thing instead of carrying through to look and behold and praise God. But it's not just creation that we look at. In verse 3, it says, full of splendor and majesty is his work. And it seems like, unlike the works of God of creation, this is talking about his specific work of salvation. His work of redemption that comes to God's people. And this whole psalm is celebrating not what God has done just for the psalmist, but what God has done for all of his people. It says that he provides food, that he gave them the inheritance of the nation, that he has given them precepts. This seems to correlate to the manna that he gave to God's people in the desert. To the promised land, this inheritance of nations that he gave to his people. And to the Torah, the the law that he gave to Moses to give to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. He provides food, he gives them the inheritance of the nations, and he gives them precepts that are true and faithful. This is not just limited to Israel. These ideas that God gives his people food, that he gives them an inheritance, and that that he gives them laws and, and direction for how to live. This is how he works throughout all of redemptive history. Exodus and the story of the Israelites is, is almost like the prime example, the archetype of what he does as he works out his redemption in all of history. In verse 5, it says that he provides food for those who fear him, that he remembers his covenant forever. 
And the second thought precedes the first. He remembers his covenant forever. And so he provides food for those who fear him. God's covenant and his name that is described as holy and awesome, these are the, the two pillars of God's people that they can trust in. Who God is, his name, it represents all that he is and his covenant, his relationship with his people. So the work of God is full of splendor and majesty. And his precepts are trustworthy. This is not a statement, this is a statement of quality. They are powerful. They are constant. They are unchanging. We went to a a play putt-putt with my family, and there was a teenager, no offense to teenagers, behind the counter running the arcade, and you could tell he did not understand what was going on, right? (laughs) Completely. I'd ask him a question and be like, uh, that, (laughs) and sort of, that's not how God operates the universe. (laughs) He's not unsure. He's not unclear. His advice doesn't waver day to day. His precepts are trustworthy. Indeed, the standard of all truth, the standard of all righteousness, the standard of all trust is God and what he has done. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, as God is giving the law to Israel, he says to Moses to keep them, that is the laws, and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this, is a great, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Just hearing the statutes of God say, whoa, these people are following that. They are wise and understanding. So we see that God shows us who he is. God shows us what he has done. He has shown his people the power of his works. Have you seen God's power? Have you beheld what God is like or what he is doing? And what are you doing to to bear witness to that? This is an invitation to study. I know students are like, oh, school's starting. I don't want to study. This is an invitation to study, not something that you don't see the point of, but something that when you pursue it will lead to such a fruitful bounty, such a fruitful relationship, such fruitful praise of the one who deserves all praise. As one scholar put it, theology proceeds from God, teaches us about God, and leads us to God. But how? What, what are we to do with what we learn about God? How are we to respond when we know these things? And it could be tempting to, to, to hear this and say, okay, so I guess I need to become a pastor or a biblical scholar or a theologian. Like those are the only good things to do with this, right? I need to just study more and more. That should be my entire life. That's not the case. But this does recognize that whether we realize it or not, we are theologians, We do have thoughts of God. We do know things about God, and we are acting on the basis of them. And we can shepherd each other like pastors, and we can study God's word. In fact, it says that they are studied by all who delight in him, in them, excuse me. This echoes Psalm 37. You've heard a million times, delight yourself 
in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. See, when we delight in something, we study it. I know oftentimes we think of meditation, like, what does that mean? But we meditate on things all the time. Right now, I could give you offhand a couple dozen different superheroes. You ask me a question about one, be like, well, I, there's this little fact about them, right? I've meditated on those things unintentionally. Maybe you can uh, encyclopedically recite some sports team statistics or World War II history or whatever it is. Like we meditate on things all the time. And that is the call here. When we are interested in things, when we delight in them, we will meditate in them. We will study them. But in the midst of this process, there is a temptation to become puffed up with all that we have studied, with, with all that we know. And so humility is crucial here. You can't read this psalm and think to yourself, well, I really bring something to the table that God doesn't have to offer. Humility is crucial. We saw this in 1 Corinthians, that Paul says, like, we had nothing. God brought what was nothing to him and made it something. And so we need to be Humble, not just when it comes to our theology, but in other areas, because humility is not really something you can just do in one place. You can't be humble in one area of your life, but prideful in others. Humility is an always, all the time practice. And when we practice intellectual humility elsewhere, it's going to help us in our humility when we come to God. So we need to be willing to admit I may be wrong. We need to be willing to say, I, I may not have all the answers here. Because when we aren't, what we're essentially saying is like, I, sometimes we're willing to say, I, I'm, 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 I don't know everything. I'm not perfect. But we're not willing to nail down a specific area where we are not sure. <laughs> and so we're willing to say like, I, I don't know all this, but this spot, I am sovereign and I have all perfect knowledge. And you cannot question me here. It's hard to do this, right? We visited another church when I was on vacation, and it's hard to turn off your preacher brain when you've been doing it for a while and think, like, I wouldn't have done that. I would have said that differently. I would do that. As the pastor is talking about how God's love is great for us who need it, I'm like, oh, maybe I should listen to this as someone who needs God's love. And so we can pray. You can't pray genuinely pridefully. If you are genuinely coming to God and asking for help, you have to do so in humility. And so we can pray that God would enlighten us. Yes, that God would tell us and show us things that we need to know about him and what he's done, but also that it would work its way out into our lives, into the way that we treat others, and into the way that we worship him. That's what this psalm is calling us to. It says the fear of the Lord, this reverence of him, this awe of him is the beginning of wisdom. Sometimes we think that's like the, the, it comes first, but it's, it's almost like this is the, the, the chief thing, the most important thing, the, the pinnacle of wisdom is to fear the Lord. And all those who practice the fear of the Lord, it says, have a good understanding. These, these understanding of God is going to help us to practice his fear 
And this, pra- this practicing and fearing of God is going to help us to have an understanding. They feed each other. They're mutually dependent. But what it says here is not that knowledge or intelligence matters, but reverence and worship. It is humility before God. It is reverence for him. It is praising his name. That will tell you what you know. This means that you can claim to be intelligent. In fact, you can even have other people say, you you know what you're talking about. You could actually even be intelligent, but if it does not lead you to praise God, it means nothing. It's pointless. It's worthless. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. This is a long quote, but bear with me because it's pretty sarcastic. He says, Practical godliness is the test of wisdom. Men may know and be very orthodox. They may talk and be very eloquent. They may speculate and be very profound. But the best proof of their intelligence must be found in their actually doing the will of God. You can know the right things. You can say the right things. You can can wax eloquent about the right things. But if you don't follow what God has said, if you don't come to him and praise and worship, you're not actually doing things wisely. Like building a, a structure, a chair, or, or a floor, and saying, someone saying, hey, will this hold my weight? And you say, uh, sure. You got to step out on it in order to prove its steadfastness. See, what we think, I've heard it said, what we say and what we believe, those are the things that we already are. We like to think that, that those things precede what we are, what we think and we say, what we believe. That, well, that, that'll kind of work its way out into who we are. Those reflect who we already are. As Jesus says in Luke 6, that it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. That what is in our heart, that is going to overflow And so what this psalm is saying is not that we need to get our mind right, and once we do that, then we'll be able to do everything well. See, what we do, our strength, what we love, our heart, who we are, our soul, and our minds are all interconnected. They all affect each other. That's why it says that we are to praise the Lord with my whole heart, as the psalmist says. This is an undivided heart. It's not, hey, I've got God in in 95% of it, but I've got this one thing that I really love over here that's that's on equal footing. It's undivided. We are wholly worshiping the Lord. It's why he says that, that the works of God are studied by all those who delight in him. Delight is not a mental thing. That's an affection thing. What we love, what we like. But you might say, aren't we always supposed to be prepared to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that we have? That is true. But notice that what comes first is the hope that we have. We are supposed to have a hope that is so obvious that people are like, what? where is that hope coming from? You might say, aren't we supposed to be transformed by the renewal of our mind? We read that earlier supposed to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Yes, but 
We are offering our bodies as living sacrifices. That is, living out faithfully what God has called us to. And that is our spiritual worship. They're all interconnected, and they all lead us to praise. The good news is, though, we're not doing this by ourselves. We have the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit. We also have each other. Notice how the whole psalm starts. It says, praise the Lord. That's hallelujah in Hebrew. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord. Right? It's a call. Like Everybody should praise the Lord. But no matter what, I'm going to praise the Lord. It's kind of like the uh, ice bucket challenge, right? When, when we saw people say, oh yeah, I'm going to donate money to so-and-so, but then you see them actually dump the ice bucket on their head. And, and that campaign was hugely successful because you got to literally see celebrities, maybe some that you wanted to dump ice on their head, right? You got to see them doing this thing. That's what the psalmist is saying. Like, you should do this, but I'm going to do it regardless. Come and follow me. Likewise, he says that, that we should praise the Lord in the company of the upright and the congregation, right? This company and, and congregation seems like two different ways of talking about groups of people, sort of like your small group or your family, but also the entire church community. We're supposed to, to praise the Lord together in each other's presence. We're supposed to support each other as we seek to do that. We're supposed to help each other when it's difficult to do so. We're supposed to help each other even get to church, to help the young parents by serving in the nursery, just to, to aid each other in worship. In Charles Spurgeon's commentary on this psalmist, he says this psalmist is inviting us to magnify God. And then Spurgeon, in his, in his, his, his commentary, he says, I'm going to stop now and praise God. And I invite you to do the same, reader. I got invited, as I was studying this week, I got invited by Charles Spurgeon to praise God 137 years later. That is amazing that God gives us a community of faith, that we can help engage each other with the truth, yes, but where we are. To not come in and say, well, you got to meet this minimum threshold of knowledge before we can really talk. Right? If you want to know whether you actually know theology, go try to teach children's church. Because you have not learned theology enough, well enough, until you can explain it to a three and four-year-old. I've said for a while that we should have pastors try to explain the Trinity to a five-year-old as part of their examinations. It would probably weed out a lot of stuff. This is part of why we have a discipleship program where we have people different stages of their faith, different experiences come together and say, I, I, I know a little bit about God over here. What do you know? Let's, let's match each other up and fill each other up and teach each other and help each other to praise God more and more. So how do we worship the Lord with all our mind? We do study but we do so humbly, and we, and we live it out, we do it together. And that all leads us to the, to the act of knowing the Lord. And this is different than knowing God's character. This is not just a, a, a mental, intellectual affirmation. Oh yeah, I know about God. I've heard of him. Like you know about Dwayne Johnson or something like that. Like, I've, heard of, I've heard of that guy. 
This is a, a, a whole person engagement. This is a relationship to know the Lord. Notice how the psalm concludes. Holy and awesome is his name. This is what the whole psalm is driving us to confess. Holy and awesome is his name. When it talks about his name, it's talking about everything that he is. All that, that he represents, holy and awesome is that. Awesome, we can kind of throw around like, yeah, that's awesome. That hot dog was awesome. That amusement park was awesome. That movie was awesome. Awesome is supposed to be like revered. Almost a little bit scared of. Holy and awesome is his name. Notice how the psalm begins by saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And then how it ends, his praise endures forever. Praise and worship bookends this whole psalm as as we know about God and we know about what he's done and we consider how we're to respond. That primary response is to be praise, to overflow. One pastor said that theology is ultimately the knowledge of God. And so the more theology I know, the more it should drive me to seek to know God. What this means is I don't care what you know about God, unless it leads you to more honest, more reverent, more sincere, more passionate worship. It's interesting to see kids when they get into something, a new hobby, and adults do this too, but it's very obvious with kids. As, as one of my kids got into Lego, right? He's got some Lego and he builds this, this stuff, but then he gets a book, an encyclopedia of Lego from the library. And he's reading about this and he starts using all the terminology. And then he goes and takes that and builds new things that I never thought he was capable of, right? That's what the call is here. Yes, to know, to understand, to study, but to, to turn that back towards the object of worship, which is God. To know, yes, but to magnify the Lord, to worship him. And as we study, as we learn more, we, we realize all along that God is the one who is helping us. If you notice throughout the psalm, there's not a whole lot of action that people are doing, at least not first. God is the primary actor here. In verse 6, it says, He has shown his people the power of his works. He has, they couldn't even see it on their own but he has showed it to them. In verse 4, it says, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. We forget. Sometimes I forget how I got home. I'm like, I guess I drove because I don't remember. <laughs> we forget, but he has caused his wondrous, wondrous works to be remembered through their magnificence, yes, but also through the power of the Holy Spirit, not the least of which is preserving his word across hundreds and thousands of years. Sometimes we can get really prideful in what we know, especially in Reformed churches. We can get pretty prideful, like, well, we, we bring nothing to the table. It's all the grace of God. It's all that. And if you guys would just understand that, you would be better. We bring nothing to the table. God is the prime maker of knowledge and preserver of knowledge, not just in the world, but in the minds of his people. It says that he remembers his covenant forever. 
This is not us remembering his covenant. This is God remembering his covenant. And as I've said before, when, when, when we talk about memory in Scripture, when we talk about remembering, it's not just something that happens up here. It's what, what carries out from that. So when God says he remembers his covenant forever, he's saying it's always in his mind, the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient mind. That's the one that remembers his covenant. And it leads to action. From the beginning of time, as soon as human beings took it upon themselves to trust themselves and, and err and sin, he promised a savior. And then throughout history, he, he guided them and he gave them prophets and he told them and he taught them and he encouraged them and he reminded them all the way to when he sent that savior who taught and explained and demonstrated all the love of God, leading even to his death, a brutal, violent, horrible death that he did not need to die except to win for himself his people. And after he was raised from the dead to, to give us that same new life, he sent his spirit to his people. And that spirit is with us, guiding us even to this day, along with his word. He remembers his covenant forever. So we should know the Lord and that knowledge, that, that connection to him should lead us to say holy and awesome is his name. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays. He does this in several of his letters, but he prays. And what he prays for is interesting. He prays for the, the Holy Spirit. He prays for Christ to work in the hearts of the people he is writing to so that they might have strength to comprehend. He wants them to have the, the ability to understand, to comprehend, along with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth he doesn't even finish his thought. <laughs> the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know, again, to know the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know something you can't know. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what we need to do if we are to worship the Lord with all our minds. It's an invitation to do something we can't do. It's an invitation to throw ourselves on the mercy of God, knowing all that he's done, knowing who he is, knowing how he has been faithful to his people again and again and again, and say, God, help us to praise you, and then to praise him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't know. We do not know all that you have done for us. We do not understand your great compassion and love and faithfulness towards your people. Help us to know, Father. Show us yourself. Show us your works. Teach us your word. Send your Holy Spirit to help us that we might overflow with praise, that we might be able to confess with this psalmist that holy and awesome is your name. Help us to be part of the work that you are doing, making your praise endure forever. We ask all this in the precious name of Christ. Amen.